everybody, I'm Frankie. And I'm Daniel, and welcome to Propagated Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. We have officially entered into the part of the year that is for Daniel, and it is not for me. <laughs> it feels like summer, bitches. It's still spring, oh. but goddamn if it doesn't feel like summer, and I love I'm it. I'm so hot. Oh, oh my gosh. I just got on the Zoom call, and I was like, wow, I'm very shiny. <laughs> you are very shiny. Oh, thank you. It's I'm glistening. I, I haven't even broken a sweat yet. I don't even have AC in my room, and I'm like, good. This is prime oh. for me. That's very hot. I get I'm in the tanning hot. bed and it's like 500 degrees and that's what I want it to be all the time. <laughs> you just want to bake. Mm-hmm. Bake me, uh. son, daddy, into it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm good with like eh, 62 degrees year round. I feel like I'd be happy at 62. 62 is cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At least compromise. Compromise and give me like a 70. All Come right. on. I'll give you a 72, but I can't wear sweaters in 72. I think it also just is like hard when you're a podcaster. Shout out to all my podcasters out there because like you have to close all your windows and I don't have AC, so I can't pump it before we record. So it's just like really hot in here. I don't know. Maybe I just, I I mean, I get, I don't know. I get a lot of sun in my room and I don't have AC and I feel good right now. We're just very different humans. Our sunshine baby. (laughs) Well, Daniel, what are we talking about today? Well, first of all, I have an article. Ooh, yay. And I'm going to talk about that. I found the article literally 20 minutes ago, so bear with me. But it's from Ag Daily. I decided to kind of stay in theme for today. Mm. So this is kind of a hint as to where the podcast will be going today. But um, I'm going to talk about soil nematodes. Ooh baby worms and the article is by ag daily reporters it didn't give a specific name but it was published may 18th 2021 and it's called how did nematodes help plants and soil help help huh i thought they were bad well that's what we're gonna talk about educate me i'm just gonna read the first paragraph because it's pretty short um And I quote, nematodes normally get a bad reputation. Yes, some of these minuscule creatures can cause harm in plants and animals. But little is known about the non-parasitic nematodes, which may have beneficial roles. Huh. So it's fun. I didn't know this either because like like you, I thought that nematodes were almost always not a great thing. Like not not a thing that you want. Yeah. Um... But not only do nematodes represent 80% of animal life by number, which is absurd. Wait, 80%? 80. 8 to 0. That's so many. (laughs) And they live in practically every habitat. Huh. So they're fucking everywhere. And so there are different kinds of soil nematodes, or there are different kinds of nematodes in general. But what I want to talk about is the soil-dwelling nematodes specifically. So question. Nematodes are basically just microscopic worms, right? Essentially, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, So the soil-dwelling nematodes that I'm talking about today and that 
this article is talking about are usually between one five hundredth to one twentieth of an inch. So like imperceptibly small. Like, I can't even like contemplate tiny. that. I'm just staring at you. <laughs> but fun <Huh>. fact <laughs> there is a nematode that lives inside of sperm whales and it's almost thirty feet long. No. What? I looked up a picture and they have one in a jar and it made me want to vomit. It's massive. <laughs> we <laughs> it's won't too be much. posting that on Instagram. <laughs> too much, too much, too much. But anyways, I that was in this article and I thought that was wild. A 30 foot long nematode. Anyways. Mo- what I'm talking about today are the imperceptible ones though. So, so, so very tiny. Mm. Um, and most of the best known nematodes are parasites. So like frankie was alluding to earlier they're usually not something that you want because once they get in large numbers around the roots of a plant they'll end up killing that plant Mm. but both root parasitic and free living nematodes play an important role in plant health and feedback to soil carbon so we're starting to study more and learn more about especially the free-living nematodes, nematodes that don't need to live parasitically off a root. And we're finding out that they're actually kind of the good guys because they're predatory. And these predatory nematodes are eating the parasitic nematodes that are hurting hurting your soil and hurting your roots. So this, so essentially you have this whole like web, you know, a food web in the soil just off of these nematodes. And it's kind of crazy, and again, we don't really know a whole lot about it. This article is pretty short, and it's something that I think they're just, like, starting to, like, do studies on and stuff. But this food web obviously kind of dictates your plant health and, like, carbon storage for the soil, which is important for plant health. So, for example, by feeding on the bacteria and fungi, these microbial grazing nematodes, the predatory kind actually help to return nitrogen to the soil through their waste. So, like, Hmm. what they're eating and pooping out is actually returning nitrogen to the soil, which is making it healthier. Yeah. And then that nitrogen is is available again for the plants to use. And nitrogen is imperative for plant growth. Um, We talked about peeing on our plants in the garden episode. I love that. (laughs) I'm still like, why didn't I edit that out? (laughs) I'm glad you didn't. It's important to know. Just don't do it every day. Thanks, y'all, for still being here with us. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, honestly, that's like the majority of what this article is trying to is trying to say is that not all nematodes are bad. And that's something that we need to do more research on and understand better and that they could be important to soil health, which they definitely are, obviously, because they're part of the food chain. But but it's kind of cool. And another important thing is that a lot of these predatory nematodes are very sensitive to environmental changes. So, like, Hmm. when we're farming or um, using different kinds, like, if you're a person that uses, like, pesticides or something of that nature, any kind of chemical stuff, they're incredibly sensitive to that. And that's killing off a lot of the predatory nematodes that could actually reduce your populations of parasitic nematodes. So the less work you can do to the soil that you're using, Mm. the more likely you are to improve your predatory nematode numbers. 
Gotcha. I mean, that feels like a perfect segue into talking about monoculture versus permaculture, right? Well, I mean, fair enough. <laughs> I, uh, I personally might have gone a little bit of a different direction today with the farming oh, okay. than All I right. think okay. that you did. But that's a perfect segue to talk about what our topic is today, which is farming yeah. in general. Yeah. Um, it was very hard for me to write notes on this because farming is such a vague term, really. Yeah. So it's just such a massive thing to look at. Mm -hmm. Like, what farming even means and, like, the different categories of farming and are we talking about organic farming, sustainable farming, or regular, like, corporate farming or, like, what what have you, you know? Like, there's a bunch of different directions to go with it. I personally kind of centered in on at least today, I'm sure that I'll have more to say about farming in the future and probably even multiple episodes about it over the long term. But I kind of focused in today on a more global idea of farming and the mm -hmm. impact that it has globally instead of trying to focus in small on types of farming. So, like, yeah, I, I kind of threw through the types of farming to the wind and focused in really hardcore on the global environment of farming and food production. Cool. Well, so, you want to start with that? Yeah. Um, so obviously I think it's important to say that a lot of times there's a bit of a disconnect between us as humans in a more modern day society and the food that we eat and how it got to be on our table. And I think that it's really important to take a moment to say that I think any human that is consuming any amount of food should be somewhat knowledgeable on how that food came to be. Yeah. So I'm gonna start it with that and there's a lot of research you can do on your own at home to try and make yourself more knowledgeable about that network of that relationship to food, you know? But at the same time, there's a cost to that. And that's what I focused on today. So if you look at your global greenhouse gas emissions, non-food emissions account for 74% of greenhouse gases, which is a lot. But food accounts for 26% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm which is an absolutely massive number. Is that mostly like meat industry? Well, that's what I'm about to talk about. Cool. Um, I thought, honestly, that the supply chain would make up a large portion of that, like yeah. distribution, transportation. you yeah, know, yeah. transportation, packaging, processing, that kind of stuff. And just the retail aspect of it all, I thought would make up a lot of it, but it's only 18% of the total emissions from food. Like you said, livestock, and fisheries make up the bulk, which is 31%. It comes from livestock and fisheries, which, I mean, includes a lot. So that's all of your dairies, all of your meat cows, chickens, Eggs, pork, yeah. everything, yeah. you know, a lot of stuff. Crop production itself accounts for 27%, just still a pretty large number, I feel like. 21% of that 
is or 21 percent total is crops for human food so that's like the corn we eat the wheat we eat uh all that kind of stuff but then a total of six percent of that is crops for animal feed Mm. so that kind of fucked me up honestly to think about how those greenhouse gases are produced and how much of them come just from us farming because all of this is farming you know yeah do you think that there's a solution to that or you're just presenting information right now i'm presenting information i'm gonna go into solutions a little bit but i think that there should i feel like it's not it's a very complex web part of part of this whole web of a solution you know because there's not it's not just going to be one thing that helps us solve this it's going to be an entire change in ideals but part of the reason it's so hard to talk about a solution is because about 3.4 billion people which is 45 percent of earth's population live in rural areas and 2 billion of those people derive their livelihoods from agriculture Mm. so over a quarter of the entire earth's population derive their livelihoods from agriculture. Wow. It's so that to me, what that figure says is this isn't a situation that you're going to be able to change easily. Yeah. No. To get 25% of the earth to agree on something is next to impossible. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's fucking wild. <laughs> So to me, I, I talking about solutions is just so hard. Yeah. So if we're talking about the U.S. specifically, you have about 2 million farms in America, in the United States of America. Um, and each U.S. farm feeds around 166 people annually. That's U.S. and abroad. That's with what we eat here and what is exported, you know? Mm. Um, but by 2050, they're expecting a 2.2 billion person increase in population. I don't see... I, oh, these notes are pissing me off. I don't know why I do it like this. <laughs> I thought it was going to go so smooth, and I'm literally like, oh, no, this is... I, like, did a... It's, like, almost like a web of thought instead of a linear thought. And well, I thought, oh, we're going to be conversational. I'm going to jump back and forth. And I'm like, no, some of these things needed to have direction. <laughs> and I'm losing that <laughs> That's direction. That's okay, though. Are. I mean, I don't know. We're not the best at linearly, linearly thinking anyways. So <laughs> <laughs> I just, like, honestly have zero information on farming. I, I went to a farm this weekend. That is about the extent of my research. <laughs> I love that. That's really cute. It was a baby goat farm. They do goat cheese. It was really cute. I mean, they weren't all baby goats, but there were a lot of baby goats. Goat cheese is also my favorite. I fucking love goat cheese. I worked on a, a dairy where we milked goats for years. But um, I think I honestly might have a little bit too much information in my brain about farming. And I spent so many years learning about it and figuring out how to do it better that it's really hard for me to try and boil it down to like thoughts that are presentable. Um, So I guess I'll ask you a question then. What do you wish most people knew about farming? People who know nothing about farming like me. 
I think one of my one of the things that bothers me the most about people who aren't super knowledgeable about farming and the rhetoric surrounding it and how people speak towards farming would have to be the conversation about GMOs mm. and organic labels and stuff of yeah. that nature because it's really it's really difficult to explain in any kind of simplistic way why it's so fucked up. But realistically, almost every food you eat, plant-wise specifically, is genetically modified by a yeah. human. Almost we all. We wouldn't have corn otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Corn on the cob that you eat at your at your family dinners or at a cookout, absolutely genetically modified. I think that the use of that term GMO, it has been given such a broad meaning or has such a broad meaning that it's a that you can throw it and it'll stick to anything. But the yeah. things that people should actually be concerned about are pretty uncommon, you know. So you have like radiated GMOs that where you're using literal radiation to change a DNA sequence to make something do what you want it to. Those haven't been studied enough to know whether they're safe. Yeah, that's that sounds wild to me. <laughs> Is it cool that you can do it and should scientists continue to study it? Absolutely. Sure, yeah. Is it something that should be in your grocery store? Probably not. Probably but you not. know what? It isn't in your grocery store. It's just not. It doesn't exist in your grocery store because it's not safe. And especially living in the U.S., what was it? Hold on, I have a statistic somewhere in here. Um, GMOs or changing plants, plant matter to do like crossbreeding and stuff of that nature, like natural slow changes that you can do over time decreased how much a dairy cow needs to eat to produce a hundred pounds of milk by 40% wow. in the last 40 years. Which is important. And people don't yeah. think about how much, how many ramifications a slight, something that seems like a slight increase in efficacy has to the entire global food chain. Yeah, yeah. If you can have higher yield of protein in your grain that you're feeding, your grain and forage products that you're feeding to your meat cows, your dairy cows or whatever, which whether you're vegan, vegetarian, or not, is still a massive part of the global food chain. Mm -hmm. If you can decrease how much they have to eat, which means you can decrease the land that they have to use yeah. by 40%, that's fucking huge. So, honestly, I guess to simplify my answer to the question, I think that one thing people should know is that GMO ought not be a dirty word. And that we should be more educated and knowledgeable about what GMO means and what is okay for yeah. you. You know, what's healthy and what's okay for for the world of GMOs. Yeah. Definitely. I, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, like, I kind of do want to talk about monoculture versus permaculture because I feel like in the world of farming that is something that is directly harmful and needs to be known 
You know? Oh, absolutely. You were saying earlier that a lot of the research that you did was kind of focused around the Dust Bowl. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Which is so fascinating to me. I oh, mean, it absolutely like... is. Period piece books from the Dust Bowl era are amazing to read. It's totally <laughs> very sad, but amazing you to read. You seem like a historical fiction person. <laughs> I mean, I love some of it. I don't love all of it. <laughs> or, or more historical nonfiction. Yeah. Essentially, as long as it's, as long as it's outside of... um wartime i don't like reading about wartime shit it's too sad no, but no. anything other than that i'm into and give it to me. <laughs> got it let's go awesome <laughs> yeah i did a lot of research on the dust bowl um it was interesting to me because it seems like very counterintuitive like all these people did this thing with no information and just went for it without knowledge of the land or like any, you know, like consulting any indigenous knowledge or anything like that. They just well, like. You're also looking at what was it? The 30s, just before yeah. the 30s, like late 20s, yeah. early 30s is when the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. happened. You're looking at an incredibly, and I, I don't mean for this to sound shitty. It's just honestly true. An incredibly uneducated population of people that uh, felt a level of entitlement to the land because they were able to get there first and ran off any native voices that could have helped them understand how to work it. Um, And that ended up very much so fucking us over hard. Awful. Awful. It is heartbreaking researching this. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to make a correction to our last episode. We didn't mention that like the Three Sisters Garden is specifically an indigenous way of knowing like that is a native gardening technique that works super well and it's just like you know yeah that's an important correction to make too and i feel like yeah a lot of times especially speaking conversationally like we do i think that it's easy to forget assume knowledge yeah Yeah, it's easy to forget that not everybody has the same knowledge that we do when we're speaking about these things. So yeah, I will personally try to be more cognizant in the future of that. I said it on social media, but if you don't follow us on social media, definitely check out the book Braiding Sweetgrass. It is an incredible, incredible book that has taught me so much about indigenous ways of knowing and the Three Sisters Garden I actually learned from that book, which is, it's just a really great book. Nice. Yeah, but anyways... The Dust Bowl was basically these extremely severe dust storms that damaged American and Canadian prairies throughout the 1930s. And basically they were caused because people didn't apply good farming methods. They were really aggressive in the way that they farmed. Basically, they had these extensive deep plowing of virgin topsoil during the 1920s, which caused this awful displacement of native deep-rooted grasses that would trap the soil in moisture during droughts and high winds. But these grasses like couldn't grow after this deep, you know, these deep furrows were created. So it basically created this biome that was perfect for when the drought came in, that it all just turned to dust and it got whipped up by the wind. And it's called the Aeolian processes. Mm-hmm. which basically is the erosion, transportation, and deposition of sediment by the wind, which 
We learned since then that it's bad. Real bad. <laughs> Real bad. Visibility in like Oklahoma, Texas Panhandle, um, some parts in New Mexico, Colorado and Kansas, people couldn't see three feet in front of their faces. Like the entire sky was black. Like Yeah, you can if you can imagine being inside of a cave, you have almost the same visibility as a really bad dust storm. For years. For some places, it was up to eight years. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I didn't really know about. Like, I, I mean, since you're a kid, you you hear of the Dust Bowl and the ramifications mm-hmm. it had on our on the United States, for sure. And you see that Dorothea Lange picture of that beautiful woman with her kids. Yeah. But, um... I don't think I was ever taught in school how fucking long some places had to deal with it. To me, it was like a moment in history, not a decade of history, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was It came in three waves. So it was 1934, 1936, and 1939 to 1940. But some places really did have it for eight years. And some of this was so bad, it reached the East Coast. Like, it reached where we were, where... It we reached are. where we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is just wild to me. And a lot of it, too, came because of the technology boom. People had gasoline tractors and were widespread using the combine, har- har- the combine harvester. <laughs> I keep wanting to say columbine because I'm growing columbine in the garden. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. And so it's one of those things where, like, just because we can do it doesn't always mean that we should. Mm-hmm. And it was really awful. All these people were basically, I think it was something like 3 million people. Yeah, 3.5 million people had moved because they couldn't make a living. But then they would move to California and California didn't have anything for them because it was during the Great Depression. So everybody was fucked. Yeah, go go read The Grapes of Wrath. It's a, it's a hard read, but <laughs> damn, if it doesn't give you a decent idea of what the average midwestern family was going through at that point in history (sighs) yeah it was um by 1936 there was 25 million dollars lost per day in that day's time like in that that, day's time that's not adjusted time 25 million not adjusted yeah holy i'm (laughs) that fucks me up yeah oh hold on i have to get a calculator out i can't i have to know what that means (laughs) um so a million dollars, because that's just the easiest. Yeah. A million dollars in 1936 is worth $18,874,928 <laughs> in today's money. So whatever 18 times 25 is. So $450 million <laughs> per day. Per day. Per day. Yeah, that's fu- and I'm not that's sure if that's like wild. lost revenue. I think that's just lost revenue, but it said lost lost expenses or something. I I'm not really sure, but that's a lot of money. <laughs> I don't care what was lost, but that's a regardless of what was lost, that's a fuck ton of money. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I'm like trying to look on the bright side here. That just comes off really insensitive. I don't mean it that way. Horrible time horrible things so much poverty so many people starving awful 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 to come out of the great depression we did get expanded participation of government which has been good in land management and soil conservation we created the soil conservation service which has Mm -hmm. helped a lot of farmers now 
Oh yeah, I've I've worked. I did internships with the Soil Conservation Service. It's a great thing. Yeah, and also out of this, the United States Forestry Service started planting trees and local plants on private land, which has been Mm -hmm. really good too. Um, And then the Farm Security Administration, they were the ones who encouraged small farmers to like the the owners of the original farms to return and restore the land and so that was a huge project that kind of restored it back to where it is now yeah which was cool man they really did just zap the whole prairie (laughs) they just zapped the fuck out of it with planting one thing at a time that's what we were talking about monoculture like yeah yeah but it's good that things came back because when I was researching monoculture, I learned that a lot of these crops that we're planting today that we plant again and again and again and again and again and again in the same soil, it gets to the point slowly where literally nothing will grow, not even grass. Grasses won't even grow. Like the land is literally permanently damaged from all yeah. the chemicals that they use to combat everything that grow stronger because of the chemicals they're using. It's such a compounded thing. In some of those situations, you would literally have to do soil restoration. Like, yeah, you would essentially be bringing soil in to re restart the idea of the soil having anything to it. God, monocultures are evil. I learned from a friend that they literally in monocultures, because bees can't cross pollinate, they literally have to ship in bees on like the backs of trucks and then they ship the bees back in and then they move them to a different area and a lot of bees die in the process and that has been a huge contribution to the bee population dying. That's why I don't drink almond milk because that is literally almond milk kills so many bees because that's how they do it. It's mon- <sighs> Almonds are in California specifically are a monoculture as fuck and yeah. they do ship bees in every year just to pollinate the almonds wild and then it ends up fucking killing like who came up with this solution it's not a good solution just like plant some flowers i don't know right it's uh, it's really (gasps) fucked up rotate your crops people i don't know crop rotation is key permaculture what up (laughs) (laughs) no but sustainable farming is something that's like That's something I want to end up doing an entire episode on because it's such a cool thing that we're learning about. I think that a lot of people don't know much about because it farming just really isn't something that a lot of people know about in general. And so a lot of the like I was talking earlier, the solutions to the issues that farming brings, a lot of those can be not eradicated, but helped by sustainable farming. Totally. And it's such a massive topic. Sustainable farming mm-hmm. is everything from crop rotation to planting in a way that you don't have to level a field, you know? So like yeah. planting to to fit the topography of your area too. Planting based on the soil conditions in the area, sending your soil off to get it tested, understanding what your soil looks like, trying to figure out if there's a plant that could help that soil or if there's a plant that would grow better in that soil this year but deposit something for the plant that you want to plant there next year it's yeah fucking wild you could go on and on and on for days about sustainable farming and how to how to implement it and and do it in ways that make sense that don't need chemicals yeah, yeah. and i mean yeah 
I don't think that with large scale farming, you're ever going to get completely away from some chemical use. Um, maybe one day far in the future when we're very advanced, if we make it that long, that could be an, there could be an answer to that, but yeah, it, it's just, God, I, it's so hard to talk about it in such a literal and small sense because of course, everyone wants the least amount of chemicals, the least amount of anything that could potentially be harmful to the environment or to us used. But trying to employ that on a large-scale farm is next totally. to impossible. Well, but that's why monocultures I was researching are so bad, is because as the one thing you're planting takes all the nutrients out of the soil, the pathogens like plant pathogens and diseases they get stronger like they adapt to this so then you have to use harsher and harsher and harsher chemicals every time because nothing's replenishing the soil or you know like a lot of permaculture is stopping for a year or like rotating your crops so that the plant pathogens don't keep evolving they like all of a sudden it's a new host so they don't know how to evolve yeah and so then they die Whereas if you keep planting the same thing over and over and over again, you need harsher and harsher and harsher chemicals. You're giving them the opportunity to evolve. Yeah, exactly. And so eventually all of these extremely volatile, harsh chemicals you're using run off from your water into the rain, into your bodies of water. And it has statistically shown that, you know, like if plants and animals and people use this water, the cancer rate is higher. Yeah. You know, it, it's an unfortunate reality. I think that we, if we get better about sustainable agriculture and companion planting and understanding mm. like the natural order of things, because obviously you're going to have pests. Yeah. Here's another thing. The question you asked earlier, what would I like more people to know about farming? Mm-hmm is that there's absolutely no reason your vegetables need to all look the same. Stop no. doing that. Oh my gosh. Yes, People exactly. expect that in the grocery store. Oh my God, food waste. Can we talk about food waste? Yeah, absolutely. Jeez. <laughs> it's know, just it's so like, weird to me that you're like, oh, this cucumber looks weird, so it's inedible. No, it's fucking not. It's still a cucumber and it's probably delicious. I'm sure it's just fine. That's like... Pe peppers are one of the big culprits where people think that every bell pepper should have this perfect, you know, little shape to it, you know, and I will maybe we'll post a picture of it. I don't know. But yeah, but like there's some weird bell peppers. Bell peppers do not all look the fucking same and you should not fucking care. <laughs> every gardener has had a weird bell pepper. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that those products on especially large scale farms just get thrown the fuck away. Oh, God. Is so terrible. It's all because motherfuckers are like, oh, I can't eat that because it doesn't look like the other bell peppers I've had. If it's labeled <laughs> bell pepper, fucking eat it. Stop. Stop. Okay. As a society, can we agree right now, forever, we're going to fix this right now, to not judge a book by its cover? Well, I. <laughs> I mean... Oh, wait, I'm a graphic designer. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> My whole job is based on people judging books by their covers, but I would literally. Never, I would never judge a bell pepper by its shape. I am just saying right now. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That, that, that was a good <sighs> chuckle. I enjoyed that. 
Um, but yeah, so I don't know. Farming is just such a fucking wild topic. Yeah. You know what I learned? Because it's just so vast. What did you learn? I learned that, like, a lot of what we talked about last week with gardening applies also to farming, but it's on a larger scale. Like, it needs way more planning and way more equipment and way more intention. The things you learn in gardening are kind of the same sort of things of like companion planting, rotating crops, making sure you have good soil, making sure you have good light, making sure you're planting the right things for the right area, making sure you have pollinators, making sure, you know, all of that stuff. Well, I mean, they're literally the exact same thing. It's just when you're talking about gardening, you're talking talking about maybe a tenth of an acre at most, you know, like that's a big ass garden, you know, a tenth of an acre is a giant ass garden. Yeah, also, how big is an acre? Oh, fucking, I mean, I can look up better numbers, but (laughs) acres are, like, actually massive. 43,560 square feet in an acre. Wow. Fucking huge. Yeah. But anyways, it literally is the same concept. It's all the same principles. Mm -hmm. You're just looking at the difference between telling somebody who works in a mom-and-pop restaurant that has one location and can cost mm. out an organic ketchup, whatever, you know, like do yeah. organic instead of big, big label ketchup that they should do that. And they can do it efficiently, easily, and it will cost them a few extra dollars every order, you know, mm-hmm. whereas if you look at, let's say McDonald's, just for example, decided to go to an organic ketchup instead of Heinz or whatever the fuck they use, you know, yeah. then instead of looking at maybe a hundred dollars a year you're looking at a billion dollars a year and it's the same when you look at a garden versus a farm you're looking at a very micro and easily manageable space to macro very difficult to manage hard to plan for space yeah and so it's, it's just really difficult and that's why i it's hard for me like I think the farming kind of gets a bad rep a lot of the time because people think that it's like, oh, you you look at livestock and fisheries and hear that they are 31% of the world's global greenhouse gas emissions, you know, like a lot, Mm -hmm, a fuck ton. mm -hmm. And people are like, well, farms are bad then. And, you know, it's not that farms are bad. It's that we all consume so fucking much that farms are forced to keep up with the level of production that you're asking for. Mm-hmm. And to do that, a lot of times these farmers are cutting corners that they normally wouldn't have to cut if they weren't having to produce so fucking much to stay competitive in a market that is just absolutely wild. So I think yeah. that putting the burden on a single person, I never want to do that because realistically, corporate We're greed. Exhausted. Yeah. Corporate <laughs> greed is what makes up over 80% yeah. of all yeah. the bad shit that happens. You know, like that's that's like that's what happens. But I do think that if we could globally have a bit of a shift in mindset towards you know, just take it easy and understand that you don't need to have 10 pounds of beef in your diet every week. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like chill out. Have a fucking burger here and there. I'm not going to judge you for it. Most people aren't going to judge you for it. If you want to eat some meat, that's totally fine. I'm not saying 
a lot of people do say that you should just cut meat entirely out and that's just never going to happen it's so unrealistic to well, me a lot of veganism is also not great for the environment which we can talk about in another episode but yeah a lot of it is just not great <laughs> but um so i think that if there's anything that you get out of this episode out of hearing me drone on and on about farming and and how I do honestly have a super soft spot in my heart for farmers and farming in general is that, you know, just don't make farming out to be evil. Evil. Because it's farming yeah. itself is not. It feeds people. Corporate farming kind of is. And maybe we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in another episode. Um, Frankie will probably cut this out because it probably could get us some lawsuits. But fucking fuck monsters. Carrots. And fuck giant corporate farms they're fucking terrible yeah um i have another question for you maybe before we end i would like to hear your opinion on communal and community farming all right i'll level with you i think that it's a beautiful idea i joked about cults last week it didn't come off as a joke when i was editing i was like that did not come (laughs) off as a joke but it was absolutely a joke sorry everyone (laughs) I think the communal farming is a great thing, and I think it can absolutely help to decrease the workload of our farmers to a certain extent, you know? Mm. But being kind of, I guess, the pessimist or realist that I am, Mm. I think that it is unlikely we'll see communal or community farming have any real control over the market or change in global outputs of farming in my lifetime. I think it's an awesome idea. I think it's a beautiful thing that we could and should absolutely do. Do I think that it's something we can realistically anticipate seeing massive change from? It's uh, debatable. I'll respond to you in one moment. it's that time of the year where people are mowing their lawns that's why we're doing lawns next episode yeah i don't know if it's maybe naive there's some part of me that really romanticizes like returning to communities and returning to more localized production and like instead of feeding say the whole world you're just feeding the you know 2,000 people in your community or whatever the number is. So like, I don't know, as much as I love avocados, maybe we don't need avocados if they don't grow here, you know? I mean, absolutely. I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I also understand, I guess, the uh, idea behind it, you know? Like that, like Mm -hmm. romanticizing the idea that we could go back to like, having only localized farming and using that as a thing but yeah for me personally i think that i struggle to see that being a reality well maybe it's some sort of balance then maybe it's like you know like you said lightening the load off of farmers by community farming but also like including some You know, being able to go to the grocery store because like realistically, not everyone's able to garden like our society set up in a way that none of us, uh, not none of us, but a lot of us don't have time to grow something and also provide for our families and also feed our families. Yeah, absolutely. And what I was going to say was that the idea of this departure from 
the comfort we've afforded ourselves. And I'm talking from a place of privilege. And I, I understand that I'm talking from a place of privilege. But I feel yeah. like I think that departure from the kind of understood creature comforts that we have, you know, like those assumed comforts that we have, like yeah. being able to go to the grocery store, like you said, and get an avocado. Make guacamole when it's off season. Or yeah. being able to go buy a buy a kiwi fruit or being yeah. able to even just like even like here in North Carolina if we went to a more sustainable localized idea of agriculture we wouldn't be able to get lemons or limes yeah you know so i yeah. i just never personally see the reality of going back words like that you know yeah 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 yeah, that makes total sense. Agreed. You know, I do think that we should focus on trying to make as much community farming a priority as possible. And teaching kids. Yeah, yeah. we want we want to we want that to be a priority. But again, I feel like a lot of that rhetoric that comes along with community farming and making that a thing is detrimental to actual farmers who aren't making what they should, who don't get to have oh, a beautiful lifestyle oh like a lot of people yeah. do. And I just, any, I try to make sure that anything I talk about wouldn't be detrimental to agriculture as a whole because it is so imperative to civilization. Like literally before agriculture, what was there? We were all nomadic. We're talking about yeah. far, far, far way back we were nomadic people because we didn't know how to farm. We didn't know how to to set up and and harvest from a specific area. So we had to roam. Our ability to settle and be comfortable and have that level of integrity in our lives is because of agriculture. Yeah. And so I just I hate that they get such a bad rap. And that's fair. And I, I yeah. hope that that's something that can change. God, farm workers are awesome. I just want to shout out, like, if you're on Twitter, I'm not sure if they're on other social media, but if you're on Twitter especially, follow United Farm Workers. I have learned so much from following that account. They show videos of people working on farms. They tell you how much they make, and it's fucking ridiculous. Like, farmers do not make enough money at all. Like, it is not livable. It's awful it's awful condition that it shouldn't be no the only people making money off of farms are farm owners and even the farm yeah. owners aren't making a lot of money yeah. because the u.s is totally sold on the idea that you should be getting everything for the cheapest possible price which is yeah kind of fucked you know and i get it um i try and make sure that i when i go shopping i get stuff that has a locally grown sticker on it because why not but yeah. I understand that that's not always a possibility. And depending on where you live, sometimes there aren't even local farms to choose from. You're just not living that's in an true. area that that's an option. Yeah. Um, God, there was so much stuff I was going to talk about today. And there's just, <laughs> I could do 10 episodes about farming. We could do we could do a part two another time, but I do have to wrap it up. So I do want to end with a fun fact. We learned from our friend Jess from the uh, Thanksgiving episode that the reason you are having seasonal allergies is because of an over planting of male plants because people don't want to clean up from female plants so they overplanted male plants so there's so much pollen that now we have seasonal allergies and that's the pay tree archie 
<laughs> I, oh my God, Frankie, I love that so much. Jesus fuck. It's a real fun fact, but also patriarchy. I can't get it out of my head. Like, it's so funny. I don't know. I, just I the way you said it honestly crushed me. The, the patriarchy. Patri- <laughs> <laughs> so great. All right. Well, that's it for this episode, then. Um, if you want to find us, find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram. We're Propagated Podcast. Just search us. You can also find us on our website. That's probably the best way to find everything. Yeah. Just go to propagatedpodcast.com. We've got you on there. We uh, would love to see you guys Yeah. on the website. We love traffic on the website. We love hearing from you guys. If you guys decide to reach out to us. Like Frankie said, just go to the website. It's got all the important links you need. And if you're super cool, maybe you'd want to buy a shirt or subscribe to us on our Patreon. If you sign up, you get an awesome Plant Zaddy sticker, which we designed ourselves. Okay, Frankie designed because I don't have a creative bone in my body. (laughs) Okay, but you were the art director. You were like, hey, I want it to be like, what's the term you used? Vaporwave? 90s synthwave. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually early 2000s synthwave, really, but. Yeah, and there's somebody weed whacking outside, so I'm just going to close this episode out. Thanks so much for joining us. We love you so much. Love you, manis. See you next time. Hear you next time. Talk to you next time. Whatever. Why did that do that? (laughs) I loved that, though.